I'm Gad Dishi. Before we start, some in-flight announcements. Before we begin, we're going to be moving at a pretty quick pace because we have a lot of ground to cover. So if you can ask everyone to please reserve comments and questions until after the shear has come to a complete stop and we've turned off the PowerPoint presentation. Alternatively, you can contact our service desk on the email located at the bottom of the source sheet and our representative will try their best to get back to you as soon as possible. At this time, we'd like all of our participants to uh, switch their phones off or to plane mode. Uh, this flight is not equipped with any emergency equipment. Our exits are located here and here. So in case of an emergency, God forbid, please be polite and try not to step on anyone else on the way out. Uh, so for today's topic, our t lecture is, Is Religious Freedom Enough? Early Second Temple Polemics, the books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra. And let's take a quick look and see what it is that we'll be doing in the shiur today. So here's our Geller overview slide. Um, as you can see, we're going to be spending a good amount of time on an introduction, mainly because some of the books that we'll be dealing with are books that many people haven't had a chance to review. Some people haven't had a chance to go through it once. Um, so we're going to be dealing with the timeline in the Bible, followed by the empires that the Jewish people experienced towards the end of Sefer Melachim and onwards until our time period that we'll be dealing with in the lecture. And then who are the leaders of Yehud? Yehud is the Persian district of Eretz Yisrael in the time of the uh, Persian Empire. So we're going to identify who the leaders are of the Jewish community. Uh, we're then going to note five oddities. So I didn't really call them questions because some of them are just a peculiar phenomenon that are worth noting. So we'll be dealing with five of those. After that, we'll get to the heart of the matter, which is the question of the uh, lecture, Is Religious Freedom Enough? And we'll address the prophetic views, meaning do Chagai, Zechariah, Ezra, do they have an opinion about this question? After that, we'll take a look at some rebellion planning, if we, anyone has in mind about throwing a rebellion, things that you need to know. Um, finally, we'll be able, once we've done all of that, to resolve or to answer the oddities and give a summary about that. And finally, we'll discuss what we think actually happened. So without further ado, let's begin. We're going to start with the timeline in the Bible. Well, if we want to understand whether the beginning of the Second Temple period is something that's discussed in the Bible, we would take a look and try to see until what era, until what year does the Bible uh, cover. So we probably can start all the way at the end and see what's the last few psukim of the Tanakh tell us. So that might be the end point of what it is that the Tanakh deals with. So if we look at Sefer Devrei HaYamim Bet, in the end of the Koran Tanakh, so it reads, Ubishnat achat lekoresh melech paras, and it was in the first year of Koresh, in English, Cyrus, melech paras, the king of Persia. And he said as follows, Ko amar koresh melech paras, ko mamlechot ha'aretz natan li Adonai Elohe ha'shamayim, v'upakad ha'yibnot labayit b'Yerushalayim asher b'Yehuda. This is the famous Koresh declaration, Cyrus declaration, that says all of the kingdoms God has given me and he's commanded me that I should build a temple for him in Yerushalayim. Who amongst his people, God be with them, they should go ahead and make Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael and rebuild the Beit HaMikdash. So these are the final psukim of all of Tanakh. This is the end of the book. So we would think that the first year of Koresh is the end point of the time period in which the Tanakh deals with. In fact, this particular event is something that we have documented by archaeological evidence. This is a copy of the Cyrus Cylinder, which was found in 1879 in Baghdad, now in the British Museum. It's not that big. It's 22 centimeters by 10 centimeters, but it has this historic declaration. It's not only addressed to the Jews on this particular find. It's addressed to many of the exiled peoples from the time of the Babylonians that Koresh, the king of Persia, was allowing back to their homelands and encouraging them to rebuild their temples, not only encouraging, but also financially supporting. Koresh Melech Paras was offering monies from the, government, from the government in order to allow these people to rebuild their temples. Well, the thing is that we open up Sefer Ezra, Perek Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, and we see something very familiar. It says, the Koresh Melech Paras. It was in the first year 
of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And then we get the next few psukim, which basically are word-for-word recitals of what it is we saw as the last psukim of the entire Tanakh. But this is the opening pasuk of Sefer Ezra. Sefer Ezra goes on to describe things that go, that happen and occur beyond the first year of Koresh, Melech Paras. And this really brings us to the realization that the books of Tanakh, as we have them listed out, are not necessarily all in chronological order. So if these are our books of the Tanakh, as listed out in a standard Koran Tanakh, so the first few books that we have from Bereshit until Devarim and Yehoshua until the end of Melachim Bet, what we call Torah and Nevi'im Rishonim, those are more or less in chronological order. After that, it seems to be that there are many overlaps in the time periods for Nevi'im Achronim and Ketuvim. So for example, in the beginning of Megillat Rut, we're told, shefot hashoftim. So Megillat Rut, which is in Ketuvim, really is occurring during the time of Shoftim, a book in Nevi'im Rishonim. Similarly, if we look at the beginnings of these books, of Mishle, Shira, Shirim, and Kohelet, so Mishle says, Mishle Shlomo ben David, Shira, Shirim, Asher, Lishlomo, Ben David Melech Birushalayim. All these books are attributable to Shlomo HaMelech. And Shlomo HaMelech's time period was in Melachim Aleph. So these three books really are occurring or taking place, authored in the time of Melachim Aleph. If we look at the books that we'll be dealing with, we have Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the, the ones that we'll be talking about the time. So Bishnach Taim Ledaryavesh Yadavar Hashem El Chagai. So Haggai sets out explicitly that he covers the second year of Daryavish, King Darius, also a Persian king, uh, the reign. Similarly, Zechariah is in the very same second year of Daryavish. And in Masechet Megillah, Chazal tell us Haggai, Zechariah, U Malachi, even though in Malachi we don't have a particular date, it says, Kulam Nitnabu, Bishnach Taim Le Daryavish. All of them were prophesizing during the second year of Daryavish, of Darius the Great, a Persian king. So if we look at these three books, they're occurring simultaneously. They're all at the same time. And so this might give us an, an understanding for what we find when people pick up different editions of the Bible. So if you have a Tanakh, which is a Koran Tanakh, it has the order that we're used to, with Devrah Yamin being last. However, if you pick up a Breuer Tanakh, which is based on the order of the Ketar Aram Sova, we see that the Ketuvim are actually uh, loc- um, located or listed differently with the Ve'ayamim being first, perhaps because of this idea that the Ve'ayamim is not chronologically last. Now we can understand why the original, our traditional uh, editions have the Ve'ayamim last because this declaration of Koresh, of Cyrus, that the Jews are allowed to go back to their homeland and rebuild the temple is absolutely a wonderful message to send everyone off. This is the end of the Bible, everyone, you should know. There's a lot of hope for the miracle of history to occur and the Jews will be allowed back. There is a future, there is a hope, and that's how it will come perhaps they ended at the Rehayamim, even though chronologically it doesn't belong there. Well, keeping all of that in mind, let's move on and understand what, which empires did the Jews face while they were uh, towards the end of Melachim Bet until the time of Darius. So the first one that we have to reckon with is Ashur. Ashur, located in what we call northeast Syria, they're the ones who exiled the ten tribes. This takes place in about 722 under the reign of Hosea ben Elah. That's Malchut Shomron is destroyed. The ten tribes are sent into exile. It's Ashur who does that. They then try to also conquer Yerushalayim, meaning Shevet Yehuda and Benyamin. Um, and this is in the time of Chizkiyahu, around 701. This fails, and this is recorded at the end of uh, Kings, in the Second Kings chapters 18 and 19, where the miracle of the angels smiting 185,000 soldiers overnight take place. And that was all under the kingdom of Ashur. After Ashur is Babel. Babel conquered Ashur. Babel's uh, headquarters are in the middle of Iraq. Uh, Babel, also known as Babylon. So they're the ones who burned the first Bet HaMikdash. And that's in 586. They exile the people. That's Galut Babel. That's described in the end of Melachim Bet Perekhafhei. And the bad guy there, he is Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar belongs with Babel. That, they're the ones who burned the Bet HaMikdash. Uh, they put together things in cuneiform. That's what you see in the backdrop here. And that was Babel. And finally, after Babel, we get to who we're dealing with, which is Paras, located in what we know as Iran today. And Persia conquers Babel or Babylon in about 539. And then in 538, Koresh gives that declaration that we just read about. And it's only in the time of Darius, who rules in about 522, a bunch of years later, uh, where we get the beginning of the building of Bet HaMikdash. 
So we have these are the empires that the Jews have encountered. Let's take a look at what the Persian Empire looked like. So this is a vast empire that sprawls throughout what the, is the Middle East, the tips of Africa, throughout some of Asia. And uh, where are the little red dot? Um, Yehud, the Jews, there's about 40,000 people who returned from the exile in Babylon. If you can't see the red dot, there it is. That's us. Okay, that little tiny little red thing, that's us. And in the modern map, if you want to take a look, the empire sprawls, includes Libya and Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Israel, Syria, Turkey, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and nations I can't even mention their name. I don't know how to say the names. So this is the vast empire under Persia. This is the, uh, the extent of their rule. And we are indeed a tiny, tiny part of this vast empire. Now, during the times of Paras, of the Persian Empire, we mentioned Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi are all contemporaneous. And so are some of Ezra and Sefer Daniel. However, Ezra himself and Daniel himself, not clear uh, when, when Ezra, if uh, it comes to the Yerushalayim, Daniel, whether he ever makes it there. But the Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi overlap to such an extent that they really can and do speak with each other, right? They can run into each other in the Makolet. They're, they're, they're all in the same exact place at the same time in the second year of Daryavesh, and all of them overlap with the completing of the building of the second Bet HaMikdash, which is finalized in 516 B.C., which is exactly the 70 years, the famous 70 years that Yirmiyahu in Perak Haftet tells the Jewish people that after 70 years of being in Babel, they will return home, and certainly after the seven year, 70 years, they rebuild the second Bet HaMikdash. Now beyond this entire time period of the reign of King Daryavesh the Great, so we also have another book in Tanakh that deals with the Persian Empire, which is Megillat Esther, and that's during the time of Ahasuerosh. So Ahasuerosh is a king that rules even beyond after Daryavesh, and even though that's not the period we're going to be dealing with, there might be something about how the Jews lived under the Persian Empire that will be relevant, we'll bring it up as we get there. So let's take a look just for a moment before we move on in regards to the Persian power politics. Now, we've discussed that they've taken over for um, uh, Bavel instead of Bavel, and there's going to be a change in approach. Right? We have a gigantic empire, and they want to ensure that they have the loyalty of their subjects. They realize that the policy of Ashur previous to Bavel and then Bavel uh, really wasn't a great uh, uh, formula for being, to have people to be loyal to them. People got a little bit upset that the ruling power killed all their relatives, burned their temples, exiled them, made them assimilate into the foreign cultures. And so per Persia, Paras, decides that they're going to have a change in approach. And instead of doing all of those nasty things, they're going to allow for religious freedom, allow for people to return back to their homelands, allow them to rebuild their temples, even fund the rebuilding of their temples. And in return for all of that, what they ask is, Money and loyalty, meaning taxes and the loyalty of their subjects. And in order to ensure the loyalty, the ones who get to appoint the local government, the various districts throughout the Persian Empire, are going to be the Persians. Okay? The Jews do not get to elect who their leaders are going to be. It's the Persians who, excuse me, who elect who they're going to be. And so this is going to ensure loyalty to the government as the local uh, people appointed are appointees of the Persians. Well... Now we've gotten to the point where we're going to discuss who are the leaders then of Yehud, of this Persian district uh, where Eretz Israel is located. Well, we take a look through the different Nevi'im, Haggai and Zechariah in particular, and we see that the main characters are these two people. One, Zerubavel ben Shaltiel, and the second one is Yehoshua Kohen Gadol. Well, let's take a look and see if we can find out anything about these people and get to know them a little bit better. So, who was Zerubavel? So we open up in the beginning of Sefer Chagai, and Zerubavel here is described as Zerubavel ben Shaltiel Pachat Yehuda. He is the Fecha of Yehud. Fecha is the Persian word for the governor. So here we have a Persian word in the Hebrew Bible, and Zerubavel is the Persian governor that's been appointed over the area of Yehud. Is there anything else that we know about Zerubavel aside from him being a political leader? Well, we take a good look throughout Tanakh and we find actually in Sefer Devre HaYamim. And if we wade through about 20 psukim in Devre HaYamim, we actually find the startling revelations that, that Zerubavel is indeed a descendant, a scion of Malchut Bet David. He is a descendant of David HaMelech. Well, if we take all of these uh, factors into account, the Jews are returning after 70 years of exile back to Eretz Israel. They're going to rebuild the Bet HaMikdash 
it sounds like things are going really well. We have one thing that's missing. If we see that Zerubbabel is really a descendant of Bet David, what is it that we want? We want Mashiach now. We want Zerubbabel to be the Mashiach. We want him to actually aspire to have the potential to become beyond the governor, to actually become the future king and take over as a, a descendant of Malchut Bet David. Well, that's Zerubbabel. How about Yehoshua Kohen Gadol? Well, Yehoshua in Haggai is described as Yehoshua ben Yehotzadak HaKohen HaGadol. So this is a father-son uh, dynasty thing. So Yehoshua was the son of Yehotzadak, who was also a Kohen Gadol. And in Devre HaYamim, once again, we see Sraya was the father of Yehotzadak. So we have the uh, lineage of Sraya, who gave birth to Yehotzadak, who gave birth to Yehoshua. So Yehoshua is Sraya's grandson. So what is it that we know about this fellow Sraya? So if we look in Sefer Melachim Bet, we see Vayikach Rav Tabachim Etzraya Kohen Harosh. We see that Rav Tabachim took Sraya Kohen Harosh, meaning the Kohen Gadol. Vayolechotam al Melech Bavel Rivlata. He was exiled to Bavel. Vayachotam Melech Bavel Vaymitem Berivla Beres Chamat. He was executed together with the other elites of the Jewish people when they got to Bavel. Well, if we have now the grandson of the then executed Kohen Gadol, who has the opportunity to retake the, the, the Kohen Gadol role. So what better poetic justice can there be against the enemies of Israel? And again, it seems to be that the hand of God is driving all of these events. And therefore, what we look at here is that we have our dream team of Jewish leaders. We have an illustrious descendant of Malchut Bet David as a political leader, and we have a descendant of Sraya who was executed for being Kohen Gadol coming back in the second year of Daryavesh. And that year is going to keep coming back again and again. All right, let's move over to the five oddities that we're going to note throughout the Nevi'im that's going to really drive the, uh, the theory behind this lecture. The first of which is that we're going to take a look again and notice that the dream team, our Chagat, the Zerubbabel and Yehoshua, are actually the addressees, the recipients of the Nevoah of Chagai. So if we read in the beginning of Chagai, Bishnat Shtaim Ledaryavesh HaMelech, Bachodesh HaShishi Beyom Echad Lachodesh, Rosh Chodesh Elul, as we know it, the first of the sixth month on the second year of Daryavesh, again the same year. Hayad Devar Hashem Beyad Chagai Anavi El Zerubbabel Ben Shealti El Pachat Yehuda Ve'El Yehoshua ben Yehoshadak HaKohen HaGadol. So these two people, Zerubbabel and Yehoshua, they are the addressees of the Nevoah of Chagai. And as we go throughout Sefer Chagai, the team of the uh, Zerubbabel and Yehoshua are repeatedly addressed again and again. So we, we have again in Perak Aleph, Vayishma Zerubbabel v'Yehoshua, and they listen to the prophecies of Chagai. Vayar Hashem et Ruach Zerubbabel v'et Ruach Yehoshua, God awakened the spirits of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Yehoshua. Again, they're mentioned together in tandem. As we continue further in Perek Bet of Chagai, and don't worry, there's only two Prakim of Chagai, so we're not going to have too many more. But is the second Perek of Chagai, Emorna is Ruvavel, Ve'el Yehoshua, speak again to Zerubavel and to Yehoshua, and again, Ve'ata Chazak Zerubavel, Ve'chazak Yehoshua, he's encouraging the two of them to continue in their work towards building the Bet HaMikdash and leading the Jewish people. They should have lots of strength and encouragement. So throughout Sefer Chagai, these two appear repeatedly again and again and again together, until we get to the very end of Sefer Chagai, in the end of Perik Bet, where it suddenly switches and only Zerubavel is addressed. We have Emora Zerubavel, and then Bayom Zerubavel. And Yehoshua is not mentioned anywhere in this last Nevoah. So again, like I mentioned before, there's not really a question, because they're not like they're glued at the hip. They don't have to always be everywhere together all the time. However, being that throughout Sefer Chagai, all the times that Haggai spoke with them, they're together. Why is it that at the end of Haggai, suddenly there's this one nevoah that suddenly Yoshua is not part of? It seems a little bit odd. Well, similarly, we see in Sefer Ezra, Perek Gimel, where they're describing the cornerstone dedication of the second Bet HaMikdash, which is a big party. So there, Hechelu Zeruvavel ben Shealtiel v'Yoshua ben Yotzadak v'yamidu et halvim. So they began... Together, Zerubavel and Yehoshua, Yeshua being Yehoshua, right? Different way of saying it. They were putting the people in charge, what their jobs were going to be in the Bet HaMikdash. And then the very next Pasuk, Yeshua, Banav, Ve'echav. 
Then the next pasuk does not record, oh yeah, and they did exactly what we said they were doing. Instead it says, Yehoshua, his children and his brothers, here the brothers are colleagues, comrades, uh, allies, uh, they were there working together with him in order to put people in charge of their jobs in the Beta Mikdash. What happened to Zeruvavel? Did someone get cut from our dream team? So again, it could be that you know they were there together in opening ceremonies. Zeruvavel is a political leader, so the actual appointment was happening by the religious leader, by Yehoshua and his children. His children may be a little bit out of place in that context. But why is it that they're not mentioned here? If they started out together, why are they not ending the job together? So that's our first oddity. The main question is, why aren't the Dream Team players always together? In particular, these two instances, one at the end of Haggai and the second at during the Cornerstone dedication. Let's move on to the second oddity. And there we have the... Um, I see the circles have uh, moved, so excuse the red circles, they're in the wrong place. Chagai gets a nevoah on the 24th of Kislev uh, in the second year of Daryavesh. And that's in Pasuk Yud. And then God goes on and gives him the nevoah. That's fine. Whoops. And then in Pasuk Chaf, we have a second nevoah. God gives a second uh, nevoah to Chagai, also on Kaf Dalet Kislev. Well, why didn't God just put all the nevoah that he had to say on Kaf Dalit Kislev in one nevoah in the morning? Why did he have to give him a nevoah in the morning and then another one in the afternoon? Like uh, we would, you know, God is God. He can do what he wants. He can speak to whoever he wants, whenever he wants. That's fine. But it seems odd that God wouldn't streamline and have them both be at the same time. So that pasuk was pasuk chaf, the nevoah that was remembered, you know, God remembered he has to give over at the end. So pasuk chaf aleph is what is the nevoah in itself that God, so to speak, perhaps forgot. And here it is. Let's, hear, let's see what it says. Emor ezru vavel pachat Yehuda lemor, ani mar'ish et ha-shamayim Tell ezru vavel the fecha of Yehuda, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And this is again the famous nevoah at the end of Haggai where Yehoshua is absent. I'm going to overturn king's thrones. I'm going to destroy the world's superpowers. I'm going to overturn the chariots and their riders, the horses and their riders, and everyone's going to be killing each other. That day, so says God, I'm going to take you, Zerubavel ben Shaltiel, my servant, Vesamticha kachotam. I'm going to place you as a signet, my, my signet, my sign of my rulership, because I choose you. That's the nevoah, that is the one that seems to have been forgotten. And this is the end of our second oddity, which is why a double prophecy to Haggai on the 24th of Kislev. Oddity number three. We read uh, in, Perik Ezra, in Ezra Perik Gimel that the Jews began to build something of the Bet HaMikdash. Now, if you recall, in the Cyrus Declaration, he had said God commanded him, Cyrus, to build a temple for him in Yerushalayim. So you would think that if we're going to go ahead and fulfill the building permit that we got from the Persian government, we're going to go ahead and rebuild the entire Bet HaMikdash. But instead, after many years of delay, suddenly the Jewish people decide they're going to start doing something for the building of the Bet HaMikdash, and they only build a Mizbeach, here it is in Pasuk Bet. Our dream team together, Yoshua and his uh, cohorts and Zerubbabel and his people with him. They're the ones who rebuild the Mizbeach, the, the altar for Hashem to bring Korbanot. So it might have been okay if we thought that they're also, you know, the next day, they, one day they build the Mizbeach, the next day they'll build the, the Shulchan, the next day they'll get some memorial in favor of the Aron that they don't have, they'll start rebuilding the walls, but we don't really get any of that. It takes a long time after this until they even start the cornerstone dedication. And so the question is, who gave them this whole idea of, okay, we're going to build the Mizbeach alone, and we're going to have the worship of the sacrifices take place by itself in, in a vacuum. Okay, and this is also a little bit of a danger because if you got a permit to build the Beit HaMikdash because the king of Persia wanted you to bring the uh, Korbanot and now you're bringing Korbanot without the rest of the temple, maybe they'll rescind the rest of the building permit. So why build only a Mizbeach? That's our third oddity. Now we move on to oddity number four, which is a little bit more involved. 
Um, it's, it's always more involved when you deal with Zechariah, because all the Nevoat in the beginning of Zechariah are very enigmatic. There's something that's been, all the commentators have been wrestling with for centuries and millennia, and it's very difficult to understand what he's trying to say. We're going to be presenting certain of his Nevoat, trying to give a possible explanation of what it is that he's speaking about. And here in Perek Aleph, Pasuk Chet, he says, Ra'iti halayla, I saw at night, and it might be a prophetic vision at night, or it might not be. I see someone riding on a red horse. He's standing next to the hadasim, the myrtle branches by the deep waters. After that guy on the red horse, there are other red horses, brown horses, and white horses. So far, so good. Then, So Zechariah turns to the Malach Hashem who's by the Hadassim. And he says, what, is, what are all these horses doing here? What, what is all this? The Malach Hashem tells Zechariah, these are the messengers that God sent throughout the land. And the people on the horses respond to the Malach Hashem. And they say, we indeed sojourned the land. And all of the land is serene and peaceful. Ah, we can just see it now. The birds are chirping. The sun is shining. Everything is wonderful, serene and peaceful. What a wonderful scene. What a wonderful image. But for some reason, the Malach Hashem is not at all happy with this. Vayan Malach Hashem vayomar Hashem svarot ad matay atelot terachem et Yerushalayim v'etarei Yehuda. Suddenly, just understanding that there's things that are serene and quiet, the Malach Hashem screams out, God, until when are you not going to have mercy over Yerushalayim and the cities of Yehuda? As puzzling as that is, Vayan Hashem et devarim tovim, devarim nichumim. And then Zechariah witnesses as God responds to the Malach Hashem and tells the Malach Hashem good things, comforting things. God has to comfort the Malach for Hashem because he's so upset that everything is quiet and peaceful. And so the Malach tells Zechariah, you know what God told me? He said, I am very zealous for Yerushalayim, and very, very much so. And I'm very angry with all of these complacent, peaceful, and uh, goyim, that, all these nations that are, that are all nice and serene. So we don't really understand why that's such a bad thing, that there's world peace. Okay, why is the Malach distressed? that suddenly we have what we think we would all be striving for for so long. So these are four out of our five oddities. And now let's get to the last of our five oddities, which is, did the Jewish people have money to build the second Beit HaMikdash? Well, let's take a look at the sources. We look at Sefer Chagai, and we get a description that's reminiscent of the years of the Tzena and the early start of the State of Israel. Zratem harbeh v'havem me'at. You, you, you sowed a lot, but you didn't really bring in many crops. You ate, but you weren't satisfied. You drank, but you could never get drunk. You, got, you wore clothes, but you never got warm. And anytime you made money, it was as if, as if you put your money into a, a pocket with a hole in it. So there was never any time that you were able to really make any money. So it seems they did not have any money. There were economic hard times during the times of Haggai. Looking at Sefer Zechariah, we have a similar description of not having money. It says, This was given on the day of the inauguration of the Beit HaMikdash. There was no profit in anybody's work. You couldn't make any money using your flocks either. There was no money. And this perhaps explains what we read in a third of the books of the Nevi'im in Sefer Ezra. Right? Many old timers, Kohanim, Leviim, heads of families, who saw the first Beit Hamikdash before it was destroyed, before they went to exile into, into to Babel, when it was time now, they were inaugurating the second Beit Hamikdash, they were all crying their eyes out. Because they were so upset and disappointed that the second Beit HaMikdash, they saw the footprint that was going to be built, about which building is about to be built, and it was nothing in comparison to what they recalled, the grandeur and the, the luxury that the house of Shalomo HaMelech, that the Beit HaMikdash that Shalomo built, looked like. So between Chagai, 
Zechariah and Ezra, we have across the board descriptions that the Jews did not have money in order to build the Beit HaMikdash. However, if we look again throughout these very same books, suddenly we see the Jews, not only do they have money, but they have what they call today Buchtot Kesef. They have tons of money, tons and tons of money, right? Recall that Cyrus said he's going to help fund the rebuilding of the temple. Well, he puts his money where his mouth is, and the first thing he does, this Pasuk Zayin, right? So the first thing he does, he takes out all of the vessels that are in inventory in the uh, palace that belong to the booty that Nebuchadnezzar took out from the Beit HaMikdash, the first Beit HaMikdash. And he goes on and gives a whole list of everything that was in the warehouse. Kol kelim lazahav alakesef, chameshet alafim ve'arbamot. 5,400 different vessels that were original from the first Beit HaMikdash. You don't have to hire anyone to do anything. It's already made. They're ready to go. You just take them from, from the Bavel, from where they were in storage, to Yerushalayim, and that's exactly what the Pasuk says they did. So they have all of these kelim at their disposal, which are quite valuable. Uh, we also see in Sefer Ezra, which is not in the Devre Hayamim piece that talks about the Cyrus Declaration, that there was a second part to the Cyrus Declaration, which is that Koresh instituted a local tax throughout the entire Persian Empire, which reads as follows. All of the Jews that are left who aren't going on Aliyah, they are obligated to give over gold and silver and wealth and animals with all of their donations that they want to give to the Beit HaMikdash. Everyone has to give these taxes to the people going on Aliyah. Nefesh Benefesh would be proud. <laughs> but we look, did the Jews actually do this? Indeed they did. Pasuk Vav says, Everyone was supporting the cause. There was a great outpour of donations, of taxes being paid throughout all of the vast Persian Empire to help these 40,000 Jews rebuild the Beit HaMikdash. That must have been a tremendous amount of money. And to get a little bit of a flavor, we see in Perek Bet of Sefer Ezra, from the heads of the families who came back from the exile. They also donated to the cause, even though they themselves were on Aliyah, they were also coming. What did they give? Zahav Darkimonim Shesh Ribot Va'elef. 61,000 gold drachma. Now, from the looks on your faces, you're not familiar with the exchange rate on the gold drachma. So, according to modern scholars, the gold drachma, this amount of gold drachma comes to anywhere between three to seven million dollars. And this is just from the heads of the family who came on Aliyah. Forget about all the people who stayed behind because they had all their businesses to deal with. So this is what it is that we have as money is coming in for the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash, the amounts that came from Koresh, the things that they got throughout the kingdom as the taxes, and the people themselves who came on Aliyah giving their own donations. Why is it then that we have conflicting reports of having money or not having money for rebuilding the second Beit HaMikdash? Well, that ends our five oddities, and we'll get back to those shortly. But now it's time to size up our situation and to get to the crux of the matter, which is, is religious freedom enough? Prophetic views. So let's flush out this question just a little bit. The question really is, should we be thankful that Koresh is giving us permission to return home after 70 years of being in exile and encouraging us and giving us the building permit to build the Beit HaMikdash and giving us funds to build the Beit HaMikdash, these original Kelim, and probably some other monies as well, we should perhaps be thankful, we should say good is good enough, and let's move on, let's rebuild the Beit HaMikdash, and let's lead a religious life as Jews in Eretz Israel as a nation. The only thing is, we won't have political freedom. We're going to have to pay our taxes to the Persian government. Or, option number two, um, should we rebel against the Persian Empire, as crazy as that sounds, and strive for political independence? Now recall, we're dealing with redemption in the air. We're dealing with the dream team, God's miracles of history. We're going back after 70 years of exile. We have these people who are the, the descendants of Malchut Bet David and the descendants of Sraya, the Kohen Gadol that was executed. We, we have this feeling that really this could be it. And really maybe we should go ahead and try to overturn the political uh, power as well. Well, when we think about it, it seems a little bit silly to try to do the uh, rebelling, and that's because, number one, we are outnumbered, right? The odds are not even a million to one. They're worse than a million to one. 
Okay, we're 40,000 people in the vast Persian Empire. We're also outgunned. We don't have any military power. Okay, we have we have uh, so much to deal with with the Persian army. There won't be any chance that we'd be able to succeed. And finally, perhaps most importantly, on a religious plane, we have to deal with the religious repercussions because if we fail in the rebellion, the result's going to probably be we're going to also lose the permit to build the Beit HaMikdash. And so, aside from all the people that are going to get killed, we're going to actually lose the one thing we have, which is the religious freedom. And what, after all, is so important, Eretz Yisrael is great. We have the ability to be in Eretz Yisrael. All the Kiddushah of Eretz Yisrael will have the Beit HaMikdash. We can worship God. Why chance losing all of that in order to get the political independence? Well, we look throughout the Torah, and we see that this type of a scenario was already envisioned. Sefer Dvarim Perechav. Ki Okay, you're going to go out to war and you're going to see a vast amount of chariots and horses, so many more than you are. Lo Do not fear them. Why? God is with you. We took you out of Egypt. Okay, and if God is with you, then I'm not afraid. Right? I'm not afraid. I'm a nesach lo mefached. We came back. We're coming back. We're going to be able to do this. Well, do the Nevi'im have anything to say on this particular question? Does Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi take a stand on whether or not they should or they shouldn't do the rebellion? Well, let's go back to Sefer Chagai, to the Psukim we already looked at a little bit before, and recall that Chagai speaks about, I'm going to overturn king's thrones. I'm going to destroy superpowers. And he tells Zerubavel, You're going to be my signet. Now, who has the power of the signet ring? That's the king, right? And we know that power from Megillat Esther. Whoever has the Chotam, they get to run the show. So God is telling Zerubbabel, you're my Chotam. You're going to be my signet ring, meaning you're going to be the king. In addition, Zechariah also seems to imply that there's going to be some overturning in the political sphere because he's describing what goes on with Zerubbabel as he's going to build the Bet HaMikdash. He, Zerubbabel, is going to build Bet HaMikdash. He's going to carry glory. He's going to sit and rule on his throne. Now this word mashal is not just some minor governance for the uh, Persian government. The word moshel is used none other than describing the kingdom of Shlomo HaMelech in Melachim Aleph. So this idea of being a ruler is an idea of kingship. It seems that Zechariah is also on board with the idea of some type of a rebellion. Let's take a look in Masechet Megillah, where we can see perhaps a little bit more what the stance of the Nevi'im were. Tana, me'ah ve'esrim zekenim, u'bahem kama Nevi'im, tiknu shemona esre brachot al hasedeh. 120 elders, and amongst them some prophets, uh, were the ones who established the shemona esre, the, the, the silent prayer, the amidah that we, we pray every day, they put it all together. And Rabbi Avadyami Bartenura in Masechet Avot explains to us, meaning these are Anshe Keneset Hagdola that we know and love, who was amongst them? Our players, Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Okay, so Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi are on the board, on the committee for formulating what tefillah we're going to say forever. Okay, what are we going to be saying in our davening? And let's take a look and see what it is that they put together for us. You're going to come back to Yerushalayim. And God should dwell in it like he said he would, meaning back in the Beit HaMikdash. Meaning the Beit HaMikdash. And all the halachists go crazy. Why is this in this bracha? It's talking about Yerushalayim. What does it have to do with Malchut Bet David? But now in historical context, when we see that Chagai and Zechariah who mentioned something about uh, you know, turning over, turning thrones, and getting Kiseh David back in play. So Kiseh David here is totally in place. Historically, the idea was, there is no Yerushalayim without Malchut Bet David. There is no Bet HaMikdash without Malchut Bet David. It's a package. And let's take a look further in Sefer Zechariah. Yedezru Vavel Yisdu Habayit Hazeh V'yadav Tevatsana. Zechariah identifies Ruvavel as the one who's going to establish and build, execute the building of the Beit HaMikdash. And then later in Zechariah, listen to this sentence very carefully, it might ring a bell. Ko Hashem Sevekot Nemot Hine Ish Semach 
Shemo, Umitachtav Yitzmach, Ubana et Echal Hashem. Okay, there's a man whose name is Semach. Okay, Semach is like an offshoot. Now, who's the offshoot? Zerubavel is the offshoot. He's the offshoot of Machut Bet David. Umitachtav Yitzmach, and he's going to grow and blossom. Ubana et Echal Hashem, he's going to build the Bet HaMikdash. And we know Semach then must be Zerubavel because he identifies Zerubavel as the one who's going to build the Bet HaMikdash. Well, let's look at that Pasuk again in Zechariah Vav. Semach, Yitzmach. Oh, look at that. In the Shemona Esrei, they established yet a different bracha. Et Semach David Avdecha Mehera Tatzmiach. Semach, Tatzmiach, Semach, Yitzmach. Zechariah is the one who gave over that Nevoah. Zechariah is the one who authors this bracha in the Amidah. When they established this bracha, this was not some amorphous, general idea that we are striving for God's salvation and he should come and help us out. This was Zerubavel's bracha. This was the bracha for all the Jewish people to pray for the success of the Zerubavel rebellion. Et Semach David could have been read as Et Zerubavel Meherat Tatzmiach. Okay, this is the bracha that all the Jewish people are made to say because we are all part of this national radicalism that having Bet HaMikdash is not enough. We must also have Malchut Bet David. And if it wasn't enough, we see in the Alkut Shemoni on a pasuk in Hosea, it tells us, Melamed shekevan shebaim Yerushalayim ba David. Once people get to Yerushalayim, so must also Malchut Bet David lechach kavu. That's why they established David. That's why they juxtaposed these two brachot. That's why perhaps they even instituted these two brachot of David to tell us this lesson that Machut David is an integral part of coming back to Eretz Israel and having Bet HaMikdash. Well, if that's the case, it's time for having a rebellion. Well, that's time to talk about how to plan a rebellion. Well, how do you do that? So how are we going to do this rebellion? Well, the first thing, like every other type of event, you've got to pick a date. So let's pick a date. So which day we're going to pick? We're going to pick Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Why are you picking Rosh Chodesh Nisan? Because, it, first of all, it's a very significant date in the ancient Near East and the Babylonian calendar, which is what they've been using now in the beginning of the Persian Empire. And we also know that it's significant because it's the time where kings go out to war. We read in Shemuel Bet, Perak Yud Aleph, which is the Perak that begins the David and Bathsheba story, not our topic. Vahi Lechuvat Hashana, and it was in the beginning of the new year, when the kings go out to war, and that's when David sends out Yoav to warfare. And Rav Yosef Kara explains to us to make sure we understand, the beginning of the year. Now why is this the best time to go to war? Well, the weather is better, it's not muddy, the horses and chariots don't get stuck, and there's also the snow caps begin to melt, there's water in the ravines and in the wadis, and people can have access to the wild barley that's growing, so that you have your supply line, right? You're not going to be able to have all of the forces of the Persian army be able to traverse the entire uh, empire if they're going to have to constantly get water and uh, food supplies from the capital. So you always try to go and have warfare when you're going to be able to have a supply line from Mother Nature. Secondly, we have to decide who's on the guest list. So who is it that's coming to this rebellion? Well, um, if we're going to rebel, okay, it's important for us to realize that the only way it might reasonably work is if we formed or joined a coordinated, simultaneous, multi-regional revolt so that Daryavesh would not be able to handle all of the multiple fronts at once. Now this is quite the logistical challenge considering that we don't have any computers or Facebook. So it's true that we are few in numbers, okay, we're that tiny little dot, okay, but uh, we have an advantage that uh, other people do not, which is that as we read in Megillat Esther, the Jewish people are mefuzar umforad ben ha'amim bechol medinot malchutecha, the Jews are spread out throughout the entire kingdom. So as opposed to other nationalities, we are everywhere. So indeed, we become the spy network. We're the ones who communicate throughout the empire. We've already been doing it, right? We already send messages about when Rosh Chodesh is, when the holidays are. The Jews send questions back to Yerushalayim, back to the Chachamim around the, the, the empire to get questions to their halakhic questions. Um, so therefore, uh, we are the ones who actually already have access to a network of people throughout the kingdom. And this, perhaps, is what we're reading in Sefer Zechariah about the horses. So we read a little bit about horses in Perak Aleph. In Perak Vav, we read a little bit more about the horses. The black horses go to the north. 
והלבנים יצאו אל אחריהם. And then the white ones go after them to a different place in the north. והברודים יצאו אל ארץ התימן. And the striped horses went to the south. והמוצים יצאו ופגשו ללכת לתלך בארץ. And then the, the gray horses went to a different area. So we see that there's different colored horses for different regions. So that's basically how we split up the entire Persian Empire according to color and according to which horses go where. That's the spy network. And if that's the case, let's go back to the distressed Malach in Perik Aleph. So Pasuk Zayin tells us that this whole event of the distressed Malach takes place on Biyom Esrim Ve'arba'a Le'ashte'asar Chodesh Hu Chodesh Shvat V'shnat Sh'taim Le'daryabesh Okay, it's very peculiar that all the Nevi'im, the Chagai, the Chaya, anything that has to do with the second year of Daryabesh, we get the day within a month, within the year. It's very important to know the timeline. So it's the 24th of Shvat. And that's when we talk about all of the different horses and the end of the Nevo'ah was Well, if our date for the onset of the rebellion is Rosh Chodesh Nisan and it's already Kaf Dalet Shvat and you send out reconnaissance and they come back, you would expect that people are at the ready. This is 37 days before the rebellion, the worldwide, then known worldwide rebellion is about to take place. But instead of having people at the ready, the whole land is peaceful and serene. And that's why the Malach is so upset. He's like, what do you mean peaceful and serene? In 37 days, everyone is supposed to be going against the Persian Empire. We have to have people already at the ready. Why is everyone peaceful and serene? And that might explain why our Malach is distressed. Well, in addition to rebellion planning for a date and people involved, we also have to have lots of money. We need money in order to buy ourselves arms. We need to have money in order to buy protection from surrounding armies to protect us against the Persians. We may need to even help bribe the surrounding nations to join the rebellion because otherwise they're not going to be deciding to go against the Persian Empire themselves. So they need to be bought out. So we all need to contribute in a major way to get the Persian rebellion going. And so therefore, we're going to do the first thing is funneling all of the taxes. So all of the monies that the Persian Empire are giving for the Beit HaMikdash, that's the first thing we're going to use for the rebellion. And not only that, but all of the donations, everything that was coming in for the Beit HaMikdash, all of it, it's all going to the rebellion. We're going to use every last penny that we have. And this is all part of some major plan of creating an artificial financial crisis, which is why we only build a mizbeach. You can imagine, if people from throughout the Persian Empire here, and also the Persian government hears that the Jews have not yet succeeded in rebuilding their temple, and all they have is this meager mizbeach, which later we'll see in Malachi, they're also bringing blemished animals as korbanot, to, to pick the situation as if they don't even have good animals to bring as korbanot. So once everyone hears this, they'll open their pockets, and their heartstrings will be tugged, and they'll give more money. And this will also fuel further donations to the Beit HaMikdash, which also will be diverted to the rebellion. Well, this kind of hurts, you know, to hear such a thing, because these are hekdesh. This is things that for the holy, it's for the Beit HaMikdash. How can you move it over to some political uh, decision that you have? And indeed, Malachi, uh, the, third, the third Navi that we haven't really spoken too much about, he's Okay, He's here in terms of telling people you're doing something that's absolutely not okay. You are desecrating God's name. Because you're saying, The God's table, meaning his mizbeach, is disgusting. And the things that he has on it as the food, meaning the korbanot, are, are despicable. You're bringing stolen and lame and sick animals. says Malachi. Cursed be the scoundrel. He has the right types of animals to bring as a, mizbe, as a korban. And he vows to bring a korban. But he on purpose is going to bring a blemished animal to the temple. Why? Because that's all part of the big play here of going on. And so therefore when they only build a mizbeach, it's not because they're really trying to reinstitute the avodah of Bet HaMikdash. In fact, they probably don't even look at it as a real avodah because they don't have all the rest of the trappings of the Bet HaMikdash. They're only using this as impetus for encouraging more donations. Well, again, Malachi, harsh and severe criticism. Can man steal from God? Because you are stealing from me, says the Malach, the Navi. And, God's, and, and the people tell God, how are we stealing from you? And God responds, 
all of the things that are supposed to go to the Kohanim and the Leviim. You're stealing that from me because you're giving it all to the rebellion. Bring all the Maaseh where it belongs into the treasury temple. Why? It'll be available to supply food in my home for the Kohanim and Leviim. You can test me on this. Do what you're supposed to do. Give the Maaser to the people that are supposed to get it. And give the donations to the Beit HaMikdash, to the Beit HaMikdash. And don't worry about all the rest of the money that you need to the rebellion. I, God, will provide for you. So even though Malachi has a very harsh, stinging criticism, it sounds from the end here that he too is ready for the rebellion, just not funding it through the funds of Beit HaMikdash. Well, with all of this pressure, you can imagine that Malachi's criticism is heard most loudly by Yoshua Kohen Gadol, because Yoshua is in charge of all of the Beit HaMikdash. He's the one who's getting all these donations. He's in charge of all the money. And he's the one giving it over to Zerubbabel, and he's the one getting this criticism that he's doing something wrong. So how does this rebellion affect our dream team? Well, if we look at the politics and the balance of power before we build anything, we, before we build the, Beth, the, the Mizbeach, Zerubbabel and Yahushua are pretty much on equal footing. Zerubbabel is the political leader, <coughs> and Yahushua is the religious leader. So no one has really an advantage on one another. However, once we build the Mizbeach, suddenly Yahushua becomes the much weightier of the forces between the two. Yahushua, as we mentioned, is in control of all the money. He's the one bringing the korbanot. He's the one who basically is on the line at this point, and he's in power, and he has a role as being Kohen Gadol. He's bringing Korbanot. So Yoshua basically at this point, he has it all. This is the best of the worlds for all of Yo- for Yoshua. He has uh, somewhat of a Beit HaMikdash. He has money and he has power. And he doesn't have to be answering to Zerubbabel really because he's the one holding all the cards. He realizes also that after the rebellion is complete, even if it's successful, then Zerubbabel will become the weightier of the two. He'll become the king. He'll be the one who calls the shots. All of the monies and the taxes, etc., will get funneled to Zerubbabel. Yehoshua will be underneath the command of Zerubbabel. And uh, he doesn't know whether or not this is the best uh, situation for him uh, personally or whether it's even good for the Jewish people to chance losing the Beit HaMikdash, as we mentioned before, to go ahead and try a rebellion. So at this point, Yehoshua is already in a quandary and he has these personal considerations. He has the religious considerations of preserving the permit for the Beit HaMikdash. And he hears the prophetic critique by Malachi. So, with all of this, Yahushua finds himself under pressure. Now, on the one hand, Yahushua wants insulation from the rebellion in order to maintain power and not to lose the Beit HaMikdash. But on the other hand, if he's going to break away from the rebellion, he still needs a community to serve in the Mikdash. And now all of the people of the Jews are aligned with the rebellion. So, what is he going to do? Enter Tzare Yehuda Ubinyamin, the enemies of Yehuda and Binyamin. Now, who are these people? Who are our enemies? They are described in Sefer Melachim Bet Perek Yud Zayin. They're the people that Melech Ashur, remember the first empire guy who, who exiled Malchut Shomron, he, after exiling the Jews, had all this empty space. And he had other exilees from other places he conquered. So he took those people, imported them, and, and settled them in the land of Shomron. And when they started living there, God sent lions and they started eating the people. And they said, this is not a good thing. So they said, let's uh, tell the king of Ashur. And they said, you know why they're getting eaten up by lions? Because they don't know how to worship the local God, meaning the God of Israel. They don't know how to worship Hashem properly. So he sends a Kohen who goes ahead and teaches them how to bring korbanot. And they bring korbanot. And the, and the lions stop killing them. And we associate this idea of bringing korbanot. They also converted they became Jews. The, the summary in Melachim Bet is, these people were God-fearing, especially because of the lions. And they continued worshipping their idols. So these people continued living in this area, and they also went on to live in Yerushalayim after Yerushalayim was destroyed. And these are Sarei Yehuda Yamin. They may have also joined up together with some of the leftover straggling Jews that did not go into the exile. So this community of Sarei Yehuda Yamin, they're always causing trouble, and it's described in more detail in Sefer Ezra. But for now, those are Sarei Yehuda Yamin. Now, if you're Yehoshua, and you're looking for an alternative, the closest you can get, to the Jewish people in order to be able to continue worshiping in the Beit HaMikdash but not having to join the rebellion. So what's the solution? Join Sarei Yehuda Yamin. 
they'll go ahead and be their Kohen Gadol because they also worship God. And this is the second major drama in the books of the Shivat Zion. Meaning the first one is, we're going to rebel against the Persian Empire. And the second is, this defecting of Yehoshua Kohen Gadol from mainstream Shaveh Zion to the size of Sarai Yehudah ben Yamin. And the question then becomes Yehoshua's timing. Which day will he choose to change sides? Well, we can glean from Sefer Ezra Peregimel, it's the day of the cornerstone dedication. Okay, that's why Hechelos Ruvabel ben Shaltel Yehoshua the beginning of the day of the inauguration, the plan was that he and Zerubbabel were going to head and be the dream team throughout the entire process. But Yeshua decided this is the time, the best time. I'm going to take control and I'm going to start running things in the Beit HaMikdash alone. And I'm not going to have Zerubbabel be any part of it. And then he takes his children, which is part of this dynastic idea, and he sets up who's going to be worshiping, working in the Beit HaMikdash. So Yeshua has now decided to switch sides, has defected. Well, the cornerstone dedication, this switching over. Which day was that? Well, let's take a look. Right, Haggai tells us. What day was that that they did the cornerstone dedication? It was on the 24th of the ninth month, which is Chavdalet Kislev. Hmm, Chavdalet Kislev. We heard that day before. What was the sec- What was Chavdalet Kislev? Chavdalet Kislev was the very same day that Haggai got the double prophecy, the one in the morning and the one in the afternoon. And what was that double prophecy talking about? It was encouraging Zerubbabel and telling him, don't worry, because I have chosen you. You're the one I choose. You're going to be my signet. You're going to be going to power. So why does Haggai need a second nevoah? Because in the morning, the dream team were together. But then during the day, when Zerubbabel is jettisoned by Yehoshua, Zerubbabel is crushed. Okay, he now is no longer in power. He's now subject to Yehoshua. He doesn't know how he's going to be functioning anymore in terms of getting money, in terms of Beit HaMikdash, everything. He's at a loss. And so Hashem sends a nevoah to Haggai in the afternoon and tells him, tells Ruvavel not to give up hope. He's going to be the one. It's going to work. He's going to be, and I'm still going to carry out this rebellion as we planned. So that's why we have a double nevoah in Sefer Haggai. Now, Zerubbabel realizes that even after this turning of events where Yehoshua joins Sarai Yodah ben Yamin, he needs Yehoshua. He can't just be encouraged by Haggai. <coughs> and he needs Yehoshua both for Beit HaMikdash and for the funds. And he doesn't have the power. We need to get Yehoshua back. And that's perhaps what's described in another enigmatic nevoah in Sefer Zechariah, Peregimel, where it says, Yehoshua the Kohen Gadol is standing before Malach Hashem, presumably a celestial being, Satan and the devil, they said, no, just like in the picture. And Yehoshua is wearing soiled garments. Well, it could be a celestial scene, but we also know that a Satan can be a mortal, and not only a mortal, but is describing a political nuisance, as we read in Melachim Aleph, Vayakem Hashem Satan lishlomo et hadad ha'adumi, a political rival against Shlomo HaMelech from Hadad, and the word used there is Satan. So we know Satan, devil, can also mean a mortal, not only just a mortal, but a political nuisance. In this case, who is a political nuisance? Sarai Yehudah ben Yamin are a political nuisance. So the Satan is a representative of Sarai Yehudah ben Yamin. And Malach Hashem can also be immortal. And who is immortal that's described as Malach Hashem? None other than Chagai Hanavi. In Chagai it says, Vayomer Chagai Malach Hashem, Bemalachut Hashem, Laam Lemor, Ani Etchem Neum Hashem. Chagai is Malach Hashem. Also here and also in the beginning of Zechariah. Whenever Malach Hashem is mentioned, we're really dealing with Chagai. So let's take a look back at the scene. Right? Yehoshua is standing there in front of Malach Hashem, meaning in front of Chagai Hanavi. And the Satan, meaning the representative of Sarai Yehuda ben Yamin, is also there. So this is the big powwow about deciding what Yehoshua's loyalties are going to do. Something happens. They're wearing soiled clothes, meaning in the beginning Yehoshua is wearing the outfit or the uniform as the Kohen Gadol for Sarai Yehuda ben Yamin. And then in the next few psukim, it says, take off all those soiled garments, meaning the uniform for Sarai Yehuda ben Yamin, and let's put you back in the clothing of the regular Kohen Gadol. Come back. Join the regular groups. Come back to the rebellion. Va'omar Yasiyumu Sanif Tahol Al Rosho. Zechariah says we're going to put back this 
the the pure sanif, the headdress of the Kohen Gadol. Chagai is standing there and they put back the clothes of the real Kohen Gadol. Well, so it means that he rejoined the rebellion, but we don't really get in this nevoah how that happened. We get that in a different nevoah of Zechariah in Perak Vav, where there it describes something interesting. You're going to get crowns and you're going to put it on, well, we would think you put it on who's going to be the king. Who's going to be the king? Zerubavel. But no. Says you're going to put the crown on whose head? Berosh Yehoshua ben Yehotzadak Hakohen Hagadol. You're going to put a crown on the Kohen Gadol's head, meaning he's going to have his own power. Meaning the idea is that if the rebellion is successful, Zuvavel will be king, but you will maintain your own power independently. You will not be under the thumb of Zuvavel. And this is further reinforced in the following psukim right after the one we just read, where again he goes, Zechariah goes on to describe Tzemach rebuilding the Hechal Hashem vehuyi sahod beyashav. Umashal al Kiso, he's going to sit and rule on his throne, Zerubavel, again, this idea of Moshel, of a kingship. And the Kohen is also going to have a throne. He's not going to have Moshel, because that's the kingship, it's only one of those, but he's the Kohen Gadol, he's going to have his own throne. And as opposed to now where they were fighting, now there's going to be a peaceful resolution between them, says the Navi. So we have this idea that there's going to be a separation of powers and the, by doing so, Yehoshua will have, so to speak, immunity from the political sphere. And this is how they get the Yehoshua to join back the rebellion. So now that we had this understanding of all the drama that went on behind the scenes, let's take a quick look and answer all of our oddities just to make sure everyone followed along. Number one, why aren't the dream team players always together? particularly at the end of Haggai and the Cornerstone Dedication, because it reflects Yehoshua's loyalties. When they're still on the same team, they appear together. When they're not on the same team anymore, suddenly they, rep- uh, they are appear separately. Secondly, why get a double prophecy <coughs> on the 24th of Kislev of all days? Because it has to deal with the day that <coughs> Yehoshua defects the Sarei Yudah ben Yamin, the last nevoah in Haggai is those words of encouragement which weren't applicable in the beginning of the day. That's why God didn't tell him and he waited till after the event actually took place. Why build only a Mizbeach? Because that tugs at the nation's heartstrings and it helps channel funds to the Zerubavel rebellion. Why was the Malach distressed in the beginning of Zechariah? Because that event took place on the 17th of Shvat, which was 37 days before Rosh Chodesh Nisan, and if the nations aren't on board for the rebellion at this time and everything is serene and quiet, it's going to be trouble for the Jews. Finally, why do we have conflicting reports of having money for the Bet HaMikdash? Well, that's because it's a result of the artificial financial crisis created to launder monies in favor of the rebellion. Now, um, we're going to discuss now what actually happened. And it, it was very exciting, and when I came up with all of this, um, it, it took a, I was always looking for some type of support um, from something, anything, uh, that would be able to tell us that this is what happened. And uh, for a good number of years, I, I didn't find what it would be. And it was very intense. It was very to figure out what it is that, that happened. Um, but then I found this. The Behistun inscription, which was known about since about 400 B.C., deciphered in the 1800s, this is no little Cyrus Cylinder. This is 15 meters high by 25 meters across, located on the side of a mountain. Okay, in terms of a size, this is the size of a five-story building. Now, this inscription has a nice picture here. Okay, and it's a picture of Daryavesh the Great, who we're dealing with, Shnachtaim the Daryavesh. Okay, and he did not listen to the uh, instructions at the beginning of the class, and he's stepping on someone here, uh, which is not nice of him. Okay, but that indicates how he got to the throne by killing someone. Um, and in this picture, we have nine figures, which are all um, subservient to King Daryavish, who apparently is much taller than all of them. We're um, really meaning that he rules over all of them. And these nine different district leaders were rebelling against Daryavish. Now, wouldn't it be great if also, in addition to them rebelling, they all rebelled at the same time? And they all rebelled on Rosh Chodesh Nisan of the second year of Daryavish. And wow! Look at that, the Behistun inscription, all that little fuzzy stuff on the top, that's writing in cuneiform. And in that cuneiform, it says that indeed, all of them revolted at the same time in March, April of the second year of Daryavesh, which was amazing. So we take a look now at the map of the Persian Empire, 
And when we look, sorry, when we look at these nine figures, um, each one represents a different uh, em- uh, district that revolted in the wording of the Kineo form. There is no mention of Yehud. Now, if we take a look at who are the uh, regions that revolted, Egypt, Babylon, uh, Armenia, all of these areas are much vast, much bigger uh, empire than little tiny Yehud. So I'm not so disturbed by them not being listed as one of the nine. Um, however, I would think that it would make sense that in light of everything that we've said and how everything actually works out together, that it is likely that the Jewish people in Yehud were also part of this multi-regional, simultaneous revolt against the Persian Empire. In addition, we've been hearing a lot about Zerubbabel. And suddenly, after the second year of Daryavesh, it seems that as if with a snap of a finger, suddenly we don't hear about Zerubbabel anymore. And he suddenly disappears. Similarly, in Sefer Ezra Perek Dalet, Okay, the, the enemies of the Jewish people are trying to stop the Jews from rebuilding the walls for the city of Yerushalayim. And there they describe the city of Yerushalayim as rebellious and wicked. Now, if they're referring to the pretty recent uh, Zerubbabel rebellion during the time of Daryavesh, so now we can understand what the reference is. But if the Jews did not revolt in the time of Zerubbabel, when the last time the, the Jerusalem was a revolting, rebellious city, was back in the time of Babel, which was more than 100 years ago. So it doesn't seem likely that that was the event that they're being referred to in Ezra Perik Dalit. So it seems to be that the Zerubbabel rebellion actually took place. Well, now we get to the question with a few moments remaining of if the prophets encouraged this rebellion, as we've seen, including our davening that we daven every day, um, how could the rebellion have failed? So Rabbi Angel in his book on the uh, Nevi'im of Shivat Zion, he brings the Malbim and he summarizes as follows. Prophecy predicts what should happen, but not necessarily what will happen. Meaning, it's possible that the potential for the actual restoration of Machut Bet David was at hand, but something amongst the people, the people were not worthy. For some reason, the prophecy did not take place. Perhaps a missing element can be identified by looking at this Pasuk in Hosea, after the Jews will return, they'll seek out God their Lord and David their king. They'll tremble from the great goodness that God gives them in the end of days. Rashi on this pasuk tells us, This is the, you know, the re-establishment of God's reign over the Jewish people. The restoration of the Vedic monarchy. Throughout what we've seen in the sources, there was tremendous desire to re-establish Malchut Bet David and to rebuild the Bet Hamikdash. But perhaps what was lacking was a little bit more of the desire to re-establish God as the King and the Kingdom of God over the people. And perhaps that was something that was missing. And so when we pray, we also have Lirushalayim Bet Semach David, which, as we said is representative of restoring Malchut Bet David. We say, to rebuild the Bet HaMikdash. And then after we've already said 18, 19 brachot, six pages, 10 minutes, we've been standing there for a long, long time, suddenly we decided, you know what? We need to add a Yehirat Son at the end because we forgot something. What is it that we forgot? Well, let's see what added element we have here. It's this dedication to the reestablishment of Malchut Shamayim that perhaps was the missing element at the times of Shivat Zion, which is what we strive to have. And as we approach Tisha B'Av, it's no better of a time for us to rededicate ourselves and wish that we all merit to achieve all of these three elements speedily in our day. Amen. That brings us to the end. Thanks for flying with us.